All right, guys, this is Ryan, and I am here with Mark. Hey. And we are... Bible Dingers. And this is Nick. <laughs> Nick couldn't be here for this introduction, but he... Uh, He's uh, in the ER. He is doing well in the emergency room. <laughs> yeah. Um, so today we have the great honor of interviewing Kosti Hinn. Uh, and the reason why we're interviewing Kosti Hinn today is because we kind of have this jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament in season four. And we kind of want to finish out the Old Testament by talking about the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. We think that there's a, a scripture in Malachi that is often grossly taken out of context. Mm -hmm. And so today we're going to talk to Costi about context um, and and how certain passages can can be taken out of context easily by certain groups. And there's just so much to learn today. Costi is just such a great teacher. And that's really that's really what I gathered from Costi while doing this interview. I already knew a little bit about him. I watched um what's the name of that document? American Gospel. Yeah, I watched American Gospel uh months back and I'm actually right now reading through God, Greed and the Pos Prosperity Gospel, which was written by Costi Hinn. Um, so I know a little bit about him, but I never really heard his teaching that much. And so today when we interviewed him, uh, I really just got a sense of, man, this is just a great teacher. He is one of, he might be the greatest teacher that I've spoken to when it comes to the scriptures. Um, so just, just, it was just a great interview mm -hmm. to conduct with Costi. I think part of the reason why we, we found his teaching so, uh, just thorough, Mm-hmm. I think is because he came out of the prosperity gospel. So yeah. he's, he's attuned to places where scripture gets taken out of context. Right. He's attuned to those things where people have mis or have abused um, teachings. So, yeah. So you may recognize his last name, Hin. He is the nephew of Benny Hin, uh, who, if you don't know who he is, he's, a, he's probably the figurehead of the prosperity gospel. He, yeah, he's up there. Yeah. Goes to stadiums. He, uh, it says that he heals all these people and and he takes a lot of money, and so he he is kind of the uh, the main figure in that in that group. And Costi is his nephew, and he spent a lot of time with his uncle doing this ministry, and he's since then come out of that, uh, came to a saving knowledge of Christ and the true gospel, and now he is the pastor at Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, Arizona. He's also the president and founder of For the Gospel Ministries. He wrote God Green, the Prosperity Gospel, as I mentioned, which I think is his biggest book. And he's also written a few books besides that. Um, and he's just a wonderful teacher of the scriptures. And so we were really excited and blessed to have him on the show today. Kasi, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm, I'm definitely a huge fan. This is Nick, by the way. Hey, Nick. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate you being patient with the timing. Of course. And, uh, I'm, yes. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, so it does look good. <laughs> oh. Hold on one second, guys. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm in the ER. Hold on. <laughs> 
Yeah, Nick's in the ER right now. Hey guys, just give me, give me. I'm so sorry, uh, Costi. Just give me two minutes. They're discharging me, and then I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm super. I'm super offended that you're not able to be on from ER. <laughs> I'm, so, so, I'm so sorry. Yeah, uh, just terrible. Give me two, terrible. Two minutes and uh, just uh, literally two minutes, and I'm done. I'm just signing the paperwork. You could. This guy. <laughs> This guy's so committed, so committed to the podcast. He's in the ER. He's like, I'm not letting you guys go to war without me. I'm- That's right. <laughs> Did you have any questions for us before we go ahead and jump in? Not so much. I think, I think I'm just with how many kind of shows I've done and podcasts and all that. I'm always intrigued. I mean, everybody has a a podcast now. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you guys, it seems you're you're an interesting bunch. You're like. I, I hadn't heard of you guys, and then I see all your stuff. I'm like, man, who are these guys? They're doing great work. You seem to have, um, even when I went to your website, like just the whole deal, I'm going, this is neat. Thank you, you know, everybody, again, everybody's got one now, and they're like, oh, come on my show. And they, they and that's great. It, podcasting is the, the name of the game these days. But how did you guys, if you could give me a quick snapshot, I know our time is kind of hey limited. So but how did you guys uh like are you all from the same church did you just decide like we got to start something do you are are any of you guys pastors kind of give me the rundown of what you how you did it it's funny you ask that because we all went to the same church but not at the same time wow (laughs) (laughs) yeah we um nick and i went at the same time together for a few years and then I had actually left the church first. I was the youth pastor and the worship leader at the church, mm-hmm. and I had been for a few years. And uh, it was just kind of beginning to be too much. My wife had just had a baby, and I was working 60 hours a week full-time and trying to do ministry. So uh, we decided to take a step back and just be members for a while. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And uh, Nick was going to the church at the time and he was kind of one of my leaders under me he helped me with the youth group and with the music ministry and then so i ended up going somewhere else and and being a member somewhere else and mark came right after i did and so nick was kind of the link here for the three of us Mm -hmm. and um, actually the first time i met ryan was the first episode that we recorded (laughs) yeah so uh Anyways, there was a uh, there was a little bit of weird dynamic, I suppose, for the first few episodes between Mark and myself because we were kind of getting to know each other for the first time and trying to start go a through Bible exposition <laughs> together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, but yeah, we uh, Nick and myself really had the idea at first that uh, we really wanted to go through and teach each book of the Bible. Uh, because, like you said, there is a ton of podcasts out there, but a lot of it is really just kind of just interviews and topical, whatever whatever is going to be talked about, or what you know. Yeah. There's not really a, a firm direction for a lot of them. So, I'm taking what I learned in Bible college, and I'm just trying to give it to the masses, honestly, okay. uh, for free and and as accessibly as I can. And so this is what we felt was the best way to do it. And Mark jumped on board and he's been all about it and he's a technical genius. And so he puts together all our graphics and edits everything and videos and stuff like that. So that's where we're coming from. Sweet. Yeah. I, I noticed that. I mean, again, whenever I get an invite, I'll, I'll look at the stuff 
um, if I'm going to even consider it. And so an assistant or someone will send me stuff over and sometimes I'll send it to our young people because they know more than I do about all the different <laughs> like podcasts and things. This one, the minute I started looking at it, I was like, all right, these guys are organized. They got a system. This, this will be, cause that's really the thing. And you guys know this, why do something if it's not going to help people and be organized and clear and purposeful, especially when you got families and kids and ministry and so much to do. Yeah, all right. So if we're going to do this, let's do it right. Yeah. And you guys yeah. have, have really put something that's really good together. So well done. Oh, I really appreciate, I appreciate that. that, man. All right. So Costi, uh, we just want to ask you to start with why is it important to read scripture in context? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, the first thing I would think of is an illustration almost uh, that the idea that let's say one of us wrote a, a love letter to our wife or, or just a letter to our kids. And uh, one of, let's say I, I wrote something to my kids and, you know, Nick decides that he's going to read it. Uh, the last thing that I would want as the author is for Nick to take something I wrote and apply it some other way outside of my intentions. And so you take, you know, one sentence or maybe a few words out of that letter that had a specific purpose and a, a clear audience and a clear author, and then use it for sort of whatever I want. That would be the illustration I would use. When we think of the Bible, it's so important to realize that uh, every single book of the Bible or every single author of the Bible, of course, the Holy Spirit himself being the ultimate author, uh, moving through human hands and human pens, uh, has an intention. And so the way we often talk about this in our church is sort of the three A's. This is like really basic, but I don't think it ever gets old. Uh, author, audience, and application. So important mm. to get those things right. We want to we want to know the author, because when I know the author— and what he's going through and where he's coming from, I then can look at what he's writing through that lens. Uh, when I look at the audience, I can really understand what they're going through. For example, uh, maybe you look at like Peter's letters, First uh, and Second Peter, and you could read those face value and that'd be great, right? We'd all be okay if we did that. But the minute you realize that historically, he's writing to an audience you know, circa, circa 63, 64 AD. I know some scholars will debate the dates, but let's just say it's around the time, either just before or after Nero sets all of Rome ablaze and then blames Christians. And even Tacitus, the, the Roman historian, documents this. So it's mm -hmm. not like Christians made this up. This is documented. He is uh, covering Christians with their, you know, with animal skins and, and sending wild dogs to eat them and attack them. He's lighting their bodies on fire, basically on stakes. Like think of, you know, lighting up his courtyard with the bodies of Christians, you know, human torches, all this is going on. And then now go read that letter. Now go read Peter saying, you know, uh, serve, use your gifts, respect authority, respect even government, the emperor. I mean, horrible, horrible people give honor to them. Husbands, be sensitive. You know, First Peter 3, 7, live with your wives in an understanding way or your prayers will be hindered. Over and over and over, the gospel put front and center, God's calling of his people and transformation of their hearts, their inheritance in heaven, right? All pointed to. And now you go, wow, in the right context, that, that letter, especially First Peter, 
it's not about living your best life now or having, you know, all the things you want or, you know, taking taking the imperishable inheritance that Peter talks about in the first chapter and saying, God wants to bless you. He wants to make you healthy. He wants to make you wealthy. He's got an inheritance for you. Just tap into it in Jesus' name. You know, all that stuff. Imagine taking that section in First Peter chapter 1 and preaching about earthly things. That is total lunacy when you think of the context because Peter's writing to people that are really in despair, and he's going, hey, don't worry. You're aliens just passing through here. You don't, you're, you're not actually from here. This isn't where your citizenship is. You're heading home. You're going to the ultimate destination where there's an inheritance that Rome can't take away. There is treasure awaiting. There's glories that lie ahead that right now in your temporary distress might seem far off and distant. Guess what? They're waiting for you. They're sealed and set. It's going to be okay. The best isn't now. The best is yet to come, right? So that would be a picture of why we want to read the scriptures in their proper context, because when we don't, we miss out on the intended message that God has for us today, but also for the original audience who are part of our family in Christ. Does that kind of make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, you want to take the next one? Yeah, sure. I can, I can get oh, to the Nick. next one. Uh, this is next week, and yeah. So you just spoke about why it's important to read the scriptures in context, but how do we make sure that we're actually keeping the scriptures in the correct context? What's the way that you would do that? Yeah. So I sort of gave that away in the first answer as well. I merged them all together. I'll, I'll restate it, but in a in a more clear way as well, and go into more detail. Um, mm-hmm. Again. We talked about author, so I want to know who is writing this. We talked about the audience, okay, who is receiving this. And then application, that, that's a little more broad. I mean, you could take certain truths and principles and apply them to your life. But another thing that I would encourage people to do that I don't think we, we do enough is get something like a commentary or um, a study Bible and get some help. I don't say this in a condescending way at all. I call them this for a reason, but a study Bible, like let's say it was uh, one of those ones that's out there, you know, I know different publishers have them. Everyone's heard of the MacArthur study Bible and all that kind of stuff. So you've got study Bibles and depending on your, your church or your theological leanings, you know, some people may want the Reformation study Bible, you know, from those guys or whatever, what, what have you. The point is a good study Bible is like a set of training wheels. Okay. It's great. You don't need them forever, right? Eventually, you want to take them off. Eventually, you want to get to where you can ride on your own and sort of self-feed in a lot of ways and study more. But for years and years, there's nothing wrong. In fact, on and on to check your study Bible once in a while. But for years and years, to look at a study Bible, and when you're reading a passage, see what a reputable scholar says. See what somebody who's given their life to this would say at at the very least, um, that's humble, right? It's very helpful. It's humble to say, hey, what, what is somebody smarter than me saying? Um, at best, it's going to protect you. And I have known, even in my own life, when I was first converted, uh, moments where I begin to read a passage that I used to take one way, and I used to read either myself into the text, or I'd say, oh yeah, here's what this means to me. And then somebody else would say, oh, yeah, that's so cool, Costi. You know, here's here's what it means to me. And everybody had a different meaning as though the Holy Spirit is like given one person one, uh, you know, revelation and another another revelation. And there really is only one clear meaning 
of any given text. And we need to be humble enough to humble enough to say we're not going to nail that every time. We're we're still merely human, and we're not as smart as we often think we are. But a study Bible helps us look at what somebody reputable is saying, and it's like having a companion right there. And then here's my caution: over time, we don't want to become so dependent on a study Bible that we're not retaining in our own mind, in our own hearts, and we're not no longer really is you know our time with the Lord about uh, studying and seeking Him and, and asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and to lead and guide as He does so so faithfully. But now we're only interested in what R.C. Sproul says, or what John MacArthur says, or what Charles Ryrie says, or what the, you know, uh, the uh, publisher says. We really want to be careful that we don't get overly dependent. And so, one of the ways that we can make sure we're keeping the scriptures in correct context is, of course, author audience application, and then a, a helpful study Bible, and then learning to to gather a collection even of commentaries and dig in. And then I'll add one more. Uh, for many people, this is becoming more and more of an option. Go get a Bible education as you're able. Again, that's not for everybody, but a lot of people now, um, I know wonderful women in our church who uh, are busy. They're, they're stay-at-homes, and I know some women work, and some are inside. Some are different life stages, but even busy moms, I know at our church, some of them are getting their Bible certificate uh, degree or diploma. Some of them are getting undergraduate degrees. Some of them had an undergraduate degree, and they're chipping away at a master's um, online, just slowly but surely, you know, a 36-credit-hour master's. And they're, those families view it as a valuable investment. Other people, there's there's cheap, even free options now. Um, I just talked with, uh, I, I still use, I call them Logos. I know that everyone calls them Logos, but uh, the, the Bible software uh, company, they're coming out with classes online. I know um, other places are doing online things. The, the seminary that I um, have a deep affection for as well, Midwestern, where I um, got my first theological degree and I'm now completing a second. They just released uh, free free video classes where you can take certain ones. And so oh, wow. no longer is it yeah, it, it's incredible. Um it's I think it's it's the For the Church Institute. Um you guys should check it out. But basically uh Owen Strand is teaching systematic theology. Imagine you're a layperson and you can instead of Netflix binging uh, just watch a few of those videos every week and get a real good systematic theological education. So things like that are available, and so we can certainly make sure we're keeping the script- scriptures in correct context and and growing stronger in our faith. Yeah, I think so many people aren't aware of just how many resources out there. And I think a lot of people look at all of spirituality as just being this subjective experience where mm. there really is so much to dig to dig into historically. And then, like you said, with all these commentaries, these people who are dedicating their lives to studying this. I think it's also great that you mentioned the Bible certificates and all the possible courses. I think a lot of people may put that responsibility on their pastor and and they expect their pastor to get Bible certifications and know all these things, and they expect the pastor to just give it to them. But there's so many resources for just anybody, any any layperson, to go out and learn the same theology that their pastor is learning. Um, <clears throat> so we asked those two questions about scriptural context, kind of leading up to our next question, 
And you hit on it a little bit when you were talking about First Peter uh, and reading it in context. I wanted to ask you about the prosperity gospel. If you could kind of tell us what it is and the problem with teaching the prosperity gospel. And before that, I think that you're you're pretty well known at this point. But for anybody that doesn't know, could you give us a little bit of your background as well? Yeah, so background first, if you're not familiar, is I came out of the prosperity gospel. And so let me define it, and then I'll tell you how we lived it briefly. But uh, the prosperity gospel is is literally that, the good news, like gospel, the word gospel means good news, the good news about prosperity. And what it basically preaches or teaches is this, uh, that believing in Jesus Christ, following after Jesus, having your having faith in Jesus— is going to lead to or make you healthy, so you're going to be healed of all diseases and never get sick. And if you do get sick, you just claim a healing in Jesus' name and tap into what you're saved from and saved for, which is health, and you got that. And then wealth, so health and wealth, which is the same idea, just with money and and wealth and riches. And then happiness is another thing that gets thrown in there a lot, and that's, you know, perfect relationships and no division and and a happy, healthy marriage and saved children, you know, health, wealth, and happiness. It's sort of the American dream of, of gospel preaching. And a lot of people don't even like calling it the prosperity gospel anymore. I've got a good friend who just calls it prosperity theology or prosperity belief systems or things like that, because he, he won't even call it a gospel. But it would know, be like Paul says in Galatians 1, um, if any man preaches another gospel, or he'll say, which isn't really a gospel at all, you know, he he makes clear that I would say the prosperity gospel is not not a gospel. It's not good news at all. It's fake news, and I'm not. You know, I know that word gets thrown around a ton now, but it really is. It's 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 false. It's fake. And here is where uh, the questions you asked me apply again. Here's a great idea um, or a great thought about context. Uh, some of the most prolific. Prosperity preachers will use a passage like Third John, you know, First, Second, and Third John. Third John, verse two, his greeting to uh, Gaius. He says, "Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you." This is in the ESV, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And when you look at the context, right, you go, "Oh, that's that's interesting." He uh, he's greeting. His beloved in the faith. Uh, when you look at the historical greetings of the time, and I've got family that are from the Middle East, and so even my dad used to say in Arabic to my mom, um, I'm longing for your smell. Like if you said that to somebody in, in America, they'd be like, what is wrong with you? My smell? Like, what are you talking about? Um, I'm longing for your smell. Or, you know, I, I, there's, there's other ones that just get weird, but for Americans. But in a lot of cultures around the world, Greetings and well wishes are deep. They are uh, personal. They they would invade uh, the personal space or the comfort level of an American or probably somebody from from England. You know the the more proper types uh, in the Middle East. You you would you could even speak a blessing over like uh, imagine for a moment. Uh, blessing somebody's reproductive organs so that they would bear many children. Like that would be normal. In the Middle East, very, very lavish and extravagant, um, and so this is John 
saying, I pray that everything's going well with you and that your, your, your health is going good, you're feeling good, and just like it is with your soul because you're saved, oh, I pray that things are going amazing. You know, it'd be like me saying, you know, Mark, I hope, I hope just everything's going outstanding. And what a prosperity preacher will do is say, see, look at that. It is God's will. In fact, one major prosperity preacher who knows better, a lot better than to say this, once said, Jesus said in the Bible, uh, I pray, I wish, uh, above all else, you will be in good health and prosper. You don't think Jesus wants you healthy, happy, and wealthy? He says it right there in the Bible. He, he wants it for you, he promises it for you, and you can have it. So imagine taking a greeting from John to Gaius and saying that that is a promise that everybody should be happy, healthy, and wealthy if they're a Christian. Now tell the person who's struggling financially, who is a believer, you know, go ahead, claim your 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 bigger check, your promotion, and it doesn't happen. Well, then now we're into theological or even spiritual abuse when people say, well, the problem is you lack faith. Mm-hmm. And then people start doubting, does God even love me? So that would be another, why is it important to read the scriptures in context is because you could hurt a lot of people and hurt yourself if you're taking them out of context. And then here would be sort of my background with that. Now imagine me telling you guys, well, if you want that healing, sow a seed. Uh, If you want God to do something for you, you got to do something for him. That's another thing that our family used to say a lot of the times. and my dad, my uncle, myself, I used to believe that and spread that around. We'd say things like, you know, if you if you want a healing or if you want a miracle, uh, you need to make it happen. And the way to make it happen is to give money. And when you sow a seed and sacrifice, God will move on your behalf. And until you release what's in your hand, God can't release what's in his. You know, that'd be a real common phrase. In other words, release your money and God will release your miracle. That is horrific. That is abusive. Uh, that is demonic, really, honestly. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. And I lived that life, uh, taught that, believed it. And many, many people gave lavishly. And so we lived life like rock stars. I uh, flew on Gulfstream jets, stayed in the best hotels in the world, lived it up, multiple homes, mansions, the whole bit, Ferraris, Hummers, Bentleys, Benzes, all of it. And uh, God eventually saved me. So those those stories are out there. I wrote a book on that. If you, you go to Amazon, you can read it. Or if you can't afford it, email our church. We'll send it to you. Um, so that is sort of that picture in a nutshell of the prosperity gospel and its problems. I was just going to say, you know, I think that it's beautiful that um, you had what the world might think is everything, everything that you could ever want. But still, when you met Jesus, all of these things can get thrown out the window because they're not as good as Jesus is. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, it's it's uh, something that never is far from my mind. And um, I've said it this way because I'm a simple guy with kind of a, a thick head, so I need to say things in, in simple ways. But I have often said and thought, you know, if you have everything, but you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And if you have nothing, but you have Jesus, you have everything. That became a reality for us in our home mm-hmm. and in our life. And um, I saw somebody the other day tweet this, but I think he was tweeting about, I, I think it was Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he left 
uh, the life of of a doctor and a surgeon. And he he said something to the degree of in response to people saying, wow, you gave up so much and this, that, and the other. And he basically brushed it off. Like, what are you talking about? No, I didn't. I'm, I got the best of it. I gave up the things of this world. I gave up all of that. And, and I got the greatest treasure of all. And that's how we feel. People say, like, oh, it must have been so hard. And oh, the sacrifice. And oh, this, that, and it. Yeah, sure. But I, not really. I mean, interpersonal tension, yeah. Family, yeah. Um, you know, theological war with family members who, uh, you know, you're going against the grain of what they taught. They're angry with you, threats and whatnot. Sure. But in the end, we're we're on the right side. We're on the side of the king. And that, you just can't put a price on that. And when the Lord opens your eyes, you want nothing else. Your whole, all your desires change. Everything changes. So, you know, you don't even have a taste for it anymore. And, and so, yeah, it is definitely true. All that stuff is, is like Paul said in Philippians 3, just rubbish, absolute rubbish. Mm-hmm. And, and Jesus is everything. Yeah, I was going to say, talking about uh, putting a price on things, it, it reminds me of what, in part, the uh, Protestant Reformation was started over, is that these uh, priests were saying that if you pay this money, you can spend less time in purgatory, and uh, yeah. something to that degree. And uh, it's like, we're, we've come full circle, we're back at it again. Yeah, there's... There, history repeats itself, uh, often, yep. and... That's why I would encourage people more kind of just more nuggets I want to throw at people to think through. I would encourage you to read books on church history. Don't view it as boring. Like th- It's fascinating. You read um, maybe Bruce Shelley, uh, his book on church history, and it, it's perfect for going on a tour through church history. And you will see things and go, what? That's happening now. And, mm-hmm. you'll, and you'll realize what Solomon said, uh, if you believe he was the author of Ecclesiastes, is there's nothing new under the sun, absolutely nothing new under the sun. It things just come back, they rehash, uh, and so that's what we're seeing a lot of. Is yeah, what started and triggered the Protestant Reformation is still alive and well today. Like we said earlier, we're working through the Book of Malachi, and so Malachi three ten might be one of the most abused scriptures for prosperity preaching, uh, and it says, "Bring the whole tithe." See. If I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out blessings, so mm-hmm. uh, we just want to ask, what does this portion of scripture actually mean in its context? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, again, looking at the larger picture as part of context, you know, what does it say before the passage, after the passage? What is what does the rest of the Bible say about that topic? Are there clues in other places? Where does that come from? Uh, who's the author? Who's he writing to? What's the purpose? And so uh, let me just give you some sort of bullet points on this. When it comes to tithing, the word simply means a tenth, one-tenth. That's where we get the 10% idea from, uh, which let me start by saying is is fine in principle. I know a lot of good people who say, yeah, I, I, I get that you know, that's in the Old Testament, this, that, and the other, but I still want to use 10% as a principle. That's kind of my baseline for giving. You know, that's great. If you want to do that, there's some people out there, you know, financial experts and whatnot, who will say, you know, in a pithy way, isn't that great? You know, God takes 10% and you can live off the other 90, you know, and the Lord will bless you and, and all that stuff. Okay, I, I get where that some of that comes from, but we want to really understand things for ourselves. 
and then we can apply. And if somebody wants to live on 90 and give 10, go for it. But if you tell me that God commands that, I got to see where and how. And that's really what this comes down to. And so tithing is a tent. Um, something that often gets missed is that the total of tithes in the Old Testament would conservatively been over 20%, by the way, when you add up all the multiple tithes. And I'm even being conservative with that number. There's other scholars that would push it right up into 30 to even 33%. When you add up the other kinds of tithes in Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are laid out for us. And we see in the Old Testament system, uh, basically, giving of tithe was so important because the priesthood at the time was not allowed by God to own land or inheritance. So the tithe provided for their living and their needs. That's in Numbers 18.24. God literally did not allow. So if we if we were to apply that today— Oh, okay, so if we have to tithe just like the Old Testament, well then, no pastors are allowed to own land or an inheritance, and everybody has to provide completely for our living and our needs, and so that certainly is where the principle is, and Paul mentions that in the New Testament about uh, the labor being worthy of his wages and caring for elders and all of that, So, but that would be a clear principle. Um, another thing, the, the tithes acted as a sort of taxation system that helped to provide for the poor. Uh, annual festivals or feasts for Israel, and then the operation of that governing priesthood system. That was their government, Israel's government. Long before uh, you had a king, you had the priesthood. And so that still applied throughout. And then it didn't always involve money and even primarily involve money. You think about that. There were certain circumstances where it did. But you were having things like livestock and seed and produce and grain, and these were their forms of currency of course, in many ways, but there were still other forms of currency. And then uh, to withhold your tithe was disobedience in God's eyes. That's Malachi 3.9. And so that's a picture of the tithe. Now, here's the, the big kicker on Malachi 3. The storehouse is brought up. So the, the question we have to ask if we're talking about context is, well, what's a storehouse? And, and what did that mean to them, right? The original audience. And quite clearly, the, the, the produce, those things, the grains, those offerings were kept in literal storehouses, and they were used to be distributed. And we see that in First Chronicles 27, verses 25 to 27, a distribution of those goods. Uh, if we told people to bring all of their stuff into the church, to our campus, and then we're going to distribute it everywhere, that, that to some people now would sound a lot like socialism or communism. Um, they would we if if we even did what the early church did as prescripted in the book of Acts when they were sharing everything in their goods and people say we got to be like the Acts church man we got to be like the Acts church we do we should be like the church in Acts but we got to be careful when something is descriptive making it prescriptive and people often do that with tithe or this concept of tithing from the Old Testament they prescribe it as a command for New Testament believers, similar to where the, the early church was sort of there, it was just exploding, and people say, man, we got to do that too. Well, that means that that all the, the rich people in the church and the poor people, everyone has to give, it's got to be equal, we've got to distribute, we've got to share everything together. And so if we prescribe things that aren't commanded, it can get slippery, and the tithe is like that. Um, in Malachi 3.10, God views his storehouse and his and and his house, the church or the temple, as distinctly separate. And so when people say, bring all your tithe into the storehouse, in other words, give it to the church, 
that doesn't even make sense in relation to what Malachi was writing. There was a temple, and then there were literal storehouses, two separate things. And so you'd have to do a little bit of uh, interpretive gymnastics to say that Malachi 3.10 is the command for you to bring your money to the modern-day church, and otherwise, you're not obeying God, and he's not going to open up the windows of heaven upon you. And so all I would say is this. I know a lot of good churches and a lot of great preachers who are— they just have different theological lenses with this kind of thing. Teach tithing. And someone might say, what? Like, good preachers? Yeah, I, I've got some good friends that teach this, and they're not heretics. However, you just have to be consistent. If you're going to teach tithing, then teach it in the fullest sense. Teach it upwards of 20%. Uh, share everything. Have distribution centers for the church. Take it all the way, the way that the Old Testament describes. But really what it's used for, and this is where it all comes down to, guys, and I think what we're talking about, is the way that it's misapplied, is the storehouse in Malachi 3.10 is often taught to be the church, but also in many cases the pastor, kind of his bank account. And uh, a lot of people will will insist that 10% tithing is law, but they'll leave out all the other laws that God teaches and gives Israel in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, we see a lot of times that people will associate the tithe with sort of a special anointing, right? So if you tithe, if you do this, Malachi said that he'll open up the windows of heaven. So that job promotion, <clears throat> now we're into, we're, we're down the slippery slope. That job promotion your debt freedom, even salvation of your loved ones. God will pour out his blessings. And you're going, where did you get that from? From tithing in the Old Testament? You're telling New Testament Christians that they're going to be debt-free because they loaded their credit card with $28,000 this year because they were shopping too much. And now giving you 10% to the storehouse, quote-unquote, is going to erase that? No, they probably need to go over to Proverbs. And look at Proverbs 6, verse 6, and go learn a lesson from the ant who is faithful in putting away in due season, who is faithful with what it's given, and learn financial lessons from the Bible before saying, give 10%, and God will erase your credit card debt that you got yourself into. And so that's where the slope gets real slippery. Um, And then a lot of times people will say, uh, well, Jesus didn't denounce tithing, so we should still do it. I don't know if that's really good hermeneutics to say that just because Jesus didn't say something. Jesus didn't uh, actually say that homosexuality was sin either. Mm -hmm. People say that often. Now, he did talk about marriage, though, and he took his definition of marriage from Genesis, which is male and female. And so you could simply, through basic logic, affirm that Jesus was definitely united with the Father and and the, the Word, which is himself, on marriage. Uh, Again, same thing, you'd look at the way that Jesus talks about tithing. He's really scolding the Pharisees. Uh, He mentions it because we're also pre-cross, and so they're under the law. Uh, There's a lot of things that are applied there, and so we got to be really careful on the topic of tithing, assuming it for the church. It's fine if you want to teach it and live it on principle. I understand a lot of good churches do that on principle, uh, but we really want to be careful 
prescribing things and commanding things outside of their context. And then also with prosperity preachers using those things, prophetic literature, by the way, right? Malachi prophesying and speaking to Israel about Israel, and now taking those and shoving them into 2020 America, give your money and God will pour out blessings. Don't give your money and God will curse you. That's the danger. Amen. Yeah, amen. Thank you for that in-depth answer. I guess I would follow that up with, is being rich a bad thing? So can you be a Jesus-loving, genuine Christian and have a lot of money and have the fancy cars and a big mansion? Is that stuff wrong? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say first we start with the caution, uh, the caution of Jesus explaining in the gospel accounts uh, that it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What does that all mean? It can be really hard if you're really, really rich. And I I think we all either, maybe some of us are there or some of us know people who are there. I certainly interact with uh, a great deal of wealthy people now just because of how many people I'll talk to about um, the gospel and money and, and wealthy people will ask, like, what should I do? Or, or And we talk simply about that principle. It can be really hard to be really, really rich because it's it's a false sense of security. Um, but the reality is also, if you got a lot of money, you got a lot of freedom, you do have a lot of protection. Again, it's a false sense of security, but there is a reality to that. And so I would caution people the way that Paul tells Timothy to caution the rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that's where we really understand that there are rich people in the church. And praise God for that. They're usually gospel patrons. Um, we see in the letter of James, he says, you know, if a, if a rich man or a poor man enters your midst, he talks about partiality. So you also realize that uh, you're going to have some different uh economic demographics. Well, what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says, uh, but if but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing in this world, and we can't take anything out of this world. That's in chapter 6, verse 6, and then 7. And then 8 says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So I think there's a, a principle there, a lesson. We want to be content. So it's not a sin to be wealthy. It's a responsibility. You want to use it well, and Guard your heart against being discontent and always wanting more. I think it was Warren Buffett who was asked one time, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. That idea um, is something we need to really guard ourselves from if we're believers. He says, those who desire, in verse 9, to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. So it's a trap even to desire, like, I want riches and I want all that stuff. Uh, and then he goes on to say, the love of money. Not money, but the love of it is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through that craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That uh, picture is is a being skewered, basically. You, you're you're kind of just being dragged away. And then he goes on later on in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that's prideful or arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So stop there for a second. Guys, there is a clear 
piece of evidence right there that it's okay to be rich, but don't set your hope on it. And actually, if God has, if you are enjoying uh, stuff, that God has provided you with everything to enjoy. So, for example, Nick, if you got a rock grotto pool and a nice car and a big house and you're a successful, hardworking guy and you are generous with your money, you are giving to God and probably for, for somebody, if, if they're, you know, like, let's say you're loaded, it's a joke. If someone tells you to give 10%, you're like, 10%, that's, that's, that's nothing for me. You're like, I can give 50 and I'm still a millionaire. Praise God for that. And you're funding gospel work and you're lavishly generous and, and you're doing it in a way that honors the Lord and isn't showboating. Basically, Paul's telling Timothy, tell people to have that approach and, and not to feel bad. If they're they're floating in their pool on a Saturday afternoon, that God has provided that, and it's okay to enjoy floating in your pool on a Saturday afternoon, but you want to watch your heart, watch your contentment. And then he goes on, they're to do good. So again, if it's Nick, you know, you're the loaded guy, let's say. I don't I don't know what your situation <laughs> is. So if yeah. you are, if you are, it's just funny. But to 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 do good, you need to be rich in good works. You need to be generous and ready to share. And store up for yourself treasure in heaven, that's a good foundation for the future. So you can take hold of that which is truly life. That's the whole point. Again, wealth is not a sin. It's a responsibility. And some of the kindest people I know and the wealthiest people I know, uh, I've heard stories and know of stories where they have used their private planes to— take missionaries to places that they couldn't get to otherwise. I've heard stories of very wealthy people taking their second and third home and having that be missionary housing where they have missionaries furloughing there. I mean, story after story. So we really want to be careful looking at riches and wealth and people with stuff and going, oh, they must be, you know, disconnected spiritually or they must be this. And we want to look and say, okay, how are they using it? It's not about having stuff, but if the question is, does the stuff have you? Amen. Yeah, just to be clear, I'm not the rich one. That's probably Mark Orion. No, no. <laughs> none of us are rich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Hey, uh, Costi, I just want to tell you, I really appreciate how thorough your answers are. You know, uh, I expected good answers from you, but I love how you break stuff down so that Everyone can understand it so easily, is what I'm trying to say, the way that you break stuff down so thoroughly. Um, I wanted to ask, lastly, do you have any recommendations for resources if people want to learn more about this topic? Yeah, I would say that there is a book called Health, Wealth, and Happiness, okay? Health, Wealth, and Happiness by their last names are Jones and Woodbridge, okay, David W. Jones and Russell S. Woodbridge. That book is short. It is accessible. Uh, it's a great book. Um, Health, Wealth, and Happiness has the prosperity gospel overshadowed the gospel of Christ. It's a book from quite a few years ago now, 2010, so a, a decade ago, I think they released it. Um, that would be a great book. If you're looking for the, the teaching element of from start to finish, here it is, here's the quotes, here, like, I would, I would dig into that. Um, 
My publisher would probably get mad at me if I didn't mention my book, but I, I don't care if people get it or not, except <laughs> that if they need it, I'm, I'm not trying to um, put it up there as like the top resource on this subject. If you want a story and some teaching, uh, the book I wrote was purposed for that. It's called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, How Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies. It's sort of the backstory in every detail um, I could ever share that podcasts never allow time for fully. And then uh, teaching sections and a little more of a breakdown. And then there's a, a, a section that's more of a biblical view of health and wealth so people can understand even some of the stuff we've talked about. And then the last chapter is how to reach those caught up, caught in deception, because the number one question I get is, how do I reach people? Like, I got family caught up in this just like you, Costi. I got friends caught up in this just like you. How? And so we walk through Jude's words in Jude 17 to 23, that short letter, um, and Jude gives some great advice. So I break that down. I would look at that. And then honestly, for free resources, I would go to different blogs. Um, I blog regularly at furthergospel.org. That's a, a blog that I started. Um, GTY has great stuff. Ligonier has great stuff. I've, I know the Gospel Coalition has been very loud and put out some stuff about the prosperity gospel over the years. Uh, so just looking, Desiring God is another one, John Piper and their ministry there. So look online, find some some free resources, and keep educating yourself and using wisdom when it comes to this. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm a little starstruck here because I love your work. My wife and I watched the movie, and honestly... Uh, we were in tears most of the time. So American Gospel has been such a blessing. Thank you for all that you do, honestly. I'm thankful, man. I'm I'm very thankful. The Lord's been kind to us, and I'm uh, I, I'm just like anybody else, though, with young kids and a wife. I'm trying to do ministry, serve the Lord, changing diapers, and trying to figure it all out one day at a time. But Jesus makes it all work somehow. <laughs> Yeah, thanks so much for being on, Costi. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. All right. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. We will try Thank our you. best. Yep. <laughs> thanks yeah, so thank much, Costi.